Hello everybody and welcome to this next episode of Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church. This is our Sunday session you're listening to in our series, City of Temples, working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is session 32 and we're now into chapter 11. I want to do something slightly different this week and that is to focus purely on one verse, one single solitary verse with the view of doing a little bit of a season or a series review of where we've got up to. And last week's session was quite long. This week's session is going to be fairly quick by comparison. But what I want to do is focus on our, our very next verse where we came up to next week where Paul wrote and says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's some... That is some um, that is some command, isn't it? It certainly is a command. And imagine if your spiritual leader, your church leader, pastor stood up and said, "I urge you to imitate me." I wonder. I wonder if that would ever happen. I wonder if that would be something you'd want to do. I wonder if there would be grounds for that being something you would want to aspire to. Is is your church leader, is, is your the, the spiritual leaders of our land, are they worth imitating? Are they worth emulating? Are they, are they Christ-like ultimately? And that is what Paul says here, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I thought it would be good today to reflect on, review back through the previous 10 chapters to look in a little bit more detail to what it is exactly that Paul is telling the Corinthians to imitate. He qualifies what he's saying here in 11 verse 1 by saying, as I am of Christ. So he himself is an imitator. Paul is an imitator of Jesus. And so imitation's important. You see, if you, it'd be good to have your Bibles to hand anyway, as per, per normal, but today especially we're going to be leafing through the previous 10 chapters. So what, what I want to do is give 12 things as I was preparing for this today. I want to give 12 examples, okay? And that might sound quite a lot and it won't take long to go through, so just bear with me. I want to start off by making the point that in chapter 416, Paul had urged them, hadn't he, at the very beginning of this letter, I urge you then, be imitators of me. So when he says this here in chapter 11, he's covered quite a lot of ground since saying that. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. When I uh, was thinking about this, I remembered the, you know, the the Spielberg Jaws film, one of my favourite films, an absolute classic. Um, I can't remember which of the Jaws films it was. It might have been the very first one, but certainly in the more more recent ones, which was still quite a long time ago, do you remember there's this little motif that runs through the film where the central character, I think played by a guy called Roy Schneider, he was sat at his kitchen table fretting, not knowing what to do because of this shark that was killing people. And his little son, who I believe is called Michael, was sat at the table with him and Roy Schneider, or whatever his name was in the film, was sat there oblivious to, the, to his little boy. And he was deep in thought and preoccupied and suddenly then he he noticed that his his little boy toddler son was watching him like a hawk he's observing him 
and imitating his every move. Whether it was a frown, whether it was a a movement of his finger, and we see we see this then played out as a motif three or four films later, when Michael, who's now grown up into being an adult himself and has his own son, and there's a flashback to that scene. But that's what I remember, this imitation of Jesus, ultimately, that requires careful study. It, it requires deep knowledge. It requires familiarity, doesn't it? It requires clear vision to be able to see and know somebody for who they really are in order to imitate them. And that's what Paul is saying here. So it's it's something that we should all be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, Paul obviously was an apostle. He was an eyewitness of Jesus, Acts chapter 9, flawed on the dusty road of on, on the way to Damascus. But like for Elijah, who was just a man, um, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, wasn't he, as I think it says in James. And he prayed and it, that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. For years, it didn't rain. So, but Elijah was just a man. And so similarly, Paul is just a man who we're being told here, the Corinthians were being told to imitate. Um, so from these first 10 chapters, we're now at the beginning of chapter 11, what would the Corinthians have reasonably imitated of Paul had they been faithful? What would the Corinthians have reasonably imitated of Paul had they been faithful? And I say reasonably because obviously not all of them would have been capable of debating with the Jews for hours and, you know, there were elements of Paul's calling and assignment and gifting that, you know, it wouldn't, you know, we're not all supposed to be doing the same thing as clones. That's what I'm trying to say by that. But I've got 12 things here that I think are reasonable things for the Corinthians and indeed for us today to imitate about Paul and that in so doing would reflect the nature of Jesus himself. What a miracle that is um, by the Spirit of God. Um, so let me just give you these 12 in just very quick uh, summary and then I'll read read through each of them. Um, so the first the first one is thankful and eschatological. This is these are qualities. These are things that from the first ten chapters we should be imitating. Uh, Paul was thankful and eschatological. Number two, he was bold and focused. Number three, he was harsh and fair. Number four, he was inverted, foolish, and wise. Number five, he was transparently humble and strictly biblical. Number six, he was dependent on supernatural power. Seven, bold against church sin especially sexual sin. Then next one, pastorally sensitive and gentle, eschatologically aware and radically urgent, astute and discerning, faith-filled and dependent, and then finally number 12, zealous. So I'm going to go through these with reference to some of the scriptures that we've already studied thus far, and it should probably take me about a quarter of an hour, so... Firstly, thankful and eschatological. Let's go to chapter 1, back to the beginning where we started in verses 4 through to 8. All I want to do with this, these 12 points is read the little 
um, brief excerpt and then give you a couple of passing thoughts. So this is this is a midway. I know we're beyond midway, but it's certainly a, a kind of effectively partway through review. So Paul, let's imitate Paul's thankfulness and being eschatological. Chapter 1, 4 through to verse 8. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, and this is the, this is obviously, these aren't exhaustive points. There are multiple places where these all come up and, and more besides. But Paul demonstrating overflowing in thankfulness in his own salvation and the grace shown to the converts. Thanksgiving. And he was, his thanksgiving is rooted in the end of the world. And Jesus appearing, isn't it? Do you remember when he writes to Timothy and refers to to all those who have loved his appearing? Um, so he was thankful and eschatological. Number two, bold and focused. Let's let's skip over to chapter two and the first five verses. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So despite Paul's physical weakness and pain and emotional exhaustion, he was he was bold in the face of opposition. These are all good things to imitate very, very unlike the Paul previously before he met Jesus. And the focus of his boldness was the crucifixion and death of Jesus. It's interesting. We can, we're can we not going back into it now, but it just struck me afresh looking at, at this verse, which is an enduring, vivid part of this book that, was, that stays with me. Paul's resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mary and I were testifying and witnessing to this just the other day, as we should all be regularly. That's our desire and prayer, isn't it, to be doing so more and more and more. And it was just, we're talking about Jesus' crucifixion. There's no doubt that Jesus lived. There's no doubt, historically, that he was crucified. It is purely to do with whether or not he rose from the dead. And Paul doesn't talk about that. He just says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he was reliant on the, on the Spirit on the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of Jesus' death. So he was thankful and eschatological. He was bold and focused like a like a laser. He was focused. One of my favorite, I think that is my favorite verse potentially from this book. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Number three, he was harsh and fair. Let's go to chapter three in the first three verses. But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So I'm saying here that Paul's to be imitated as being harsh and fair. How many pastors, church leaders today are, are squeamish and fretful and 
pathetic when it comes to not being willing to preach and proclaim the whole truths and counsel of God for fear of upsetting the crowd and becoming harsh. Today, today, if you do anything other than placate and preach about God's love, you're harsh and unloving. Paul wasn't like that. He was deeply, profoundly loving through tears, many times through tears, and yet he was harsh in some ways, harsh and direct and firm. Firm and fair would probably be better than harsh and fair. Firm and fair. Um, there are a number of times this comes out through this book so far, isn't it? And I think one of them would be when he um, had to deal with the case of um, incest, sexual extreme sexual immorality, and that Paul, you know, he didn't acquiesce when it came to the church discipline, basically, and kicked the guy out of the church in order for him to be dealt with by Satan. That's what it says in, in chapter 5. So he was he was firm and fair, and he didn't sidestep or skirt around issues that were difficult. Um, I'm trying to be concise here and not go off tangents and speak. I could elaborate on each of these, but I'm going to quickly just say I grew up in a church as a teenager where there was never any church discipline to deal with sexual immorality. It was rife. The church that we went to um, was disgracefully known as the shagging church because it was known as the place where they were soft on sin. You know, if you if you've if you're living with somebody and you're not married, well, go to that church because they're not going to do anything about it. And the church leader who who was in charge created a culture there where that kind of uh, lifestyle was just normalized. It became normal. And often with this kind of thing, it would be tarnished as being, well, we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to be harsh. God, you know, Jesus Jesus was loving. Paul was imitating a, a profoundly gut-wrenched, compassionate shepherd of the sheep. But at the same time, he knew how to kill bears and, and lions. So thankful and eschatological, bold and focused, firm and fair. Paul was, next one, inverted, foolish and wise. Let's go to just a couple of verses down in the same chapter, chapter three. Let no one in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. This is Paul announcing a radically different kingdom, a supernatural country in Hebrews 11. It says, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And that homeland is where... Wisdom is folly and folly is why wisdom. It's the inversion. It's the topsy-turvy, inverted world that Paul um, calls us to imitate. And that's so true, isn't it, of Jesus himself. For those of you who want to be great need to become servant of all and so on and so forth. So inverted, foolish and wise. This is the turning the Corinthians um, obsession with wisdom and knowledge and turning it all on its head. We have to be fools for Christ. We have to be willing to live countercultural and even counterintuitive lives where the gospel may even sound foolish. Do you remember that? That, that emphasis on the gospel sounding foolish even to ourselves as we proclaim it. Next one, transparently humble and strictly biblical. Chapter four. So just flick over the page. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, 
that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one one against another. So this is Paul's. I'm arguing this is this is to be imitated of Paul, imitated imitating Christ-likeness in Paul, imitating Jesus. Is that Paul showcasing his strength and poten- potency of leadership? And oh, how we need this today in the church. Um. The strength and potency of his apostolic prophetic leadership um, by both discipline, rebuking error, false doctrine and sin and remaining self-deprecating. Look what he says in that verse four, verse six. I have applied all these things to myself. Church leaders, pastors, you know, applying these things to ourselves before we even dare to start thinking about preaching and teaching, this this willingness to be transparent, appropriately so, in a fitting way, in a, in a respectful way, but not. Um, Paul, Paul was a master at that, wasn't he, of calling out the sin and the false doctrine, but also uh, highlighting his own weakness, his zero tolerance for biblical illiteracy or extraneous gospels. He de- deals with that at the beginning of, um, of the letter to the Galatians. Zero tolerance for biblical illiteracy. Next one, Paul was dependent on supernatural power. Chapter 4, verse 20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The Corinthians loved talk. That Hellenistic ancient world, the pagan world, even the Jewish world, you know, the Romans, they loved talking. They loved sitting around in like hot baths and, you know, on the, on the kind of steep granite steps of the temples and just, talking about the latest thing in Athens particularly they love doing that but for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power so when Paul comes to Corinth and Corinth in much weakness and trembling and fear and rightly so he would have been knackered he would have been exhausted he would have been bow-legged you know he would have been tortured how many times in Ephesus particularly he was if you by the way I should have said this at the beginning of of this podcast if you want to read a book a biography on Paul I would highly recommend John Pollock if you've not come across or read John Pollock's book Called simply called the Apostle. Please go ahead and get that, and you get much more insight and nuance into Paul. But Paul needed. Paul knew what it was to be in much weakness physically, but at the same time with this demonstration of the power, the Spirit's power. So Paul was dependent on supernatural power. Chapter four, verse twenty. Moving into chapter five, he was bold against church sin. I've alluded to this, especially sexual sin. 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, quoted Paul. Paul was not willing to pander to appearances. He wanted holiness and genuine Christian unity. He was willing to lose face for the sake of holiness and ultimately for the glory of the Lord. And he knew and taught clearly, explicitly, that Sin is, in a sense, sin, but when it comes to sexual sin, there's something particularly abhorrent about sexual sin. So he was bold against church sin. So he was thankful and eschatological. He was bold and focused. He was firm and fair. He was inverted, foolish and wise. He was transparently humble and strictly biblical. He was dependent on supernatural power, bold against church sin, especially sexual sin. And he was, next one, pastorally sensitive and gentle, chapter 7, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you 
to peace. Paul was so sensitive to the anxiety that cripples the Corinthians and and the Lord, as a reflection of his nature, he's so gentle and lowly, isn't he? He's so aware of our own anxieties and the fragility of our frames, the limit, the limitedness of our faculties and so on. Paul's compassionate church planting, gospel proclaiming ministry it was, infu- was infused with the ongoing sense of great personal cost. Do you remember I argued from that this chapter and Paul's dealing with marriage and singleness and the gift of self-control and so on from his own um, pre- Acts 9 life, the highly highly likelihood that he was married and that it's not, I was arguing that it's likely that he would have allowed his uh, wife, it was very unlikely that he wasn't married, it's very likely that he was married and so there was this, I think, great personal cost pervading all of Paul's life physically, emotionally and so on but like I've argued in some of our studies on Five Brand Notes about Hosea in terms of this most intimate place of a man's psyche and uh, existence is this where where it comes to a man's wife and anything that touches that or the marital bed, the marriage bed, you know, the marital covenant, so on is is particularly, I think, is right up there at the apex of personal cost. So, Paul's compa- compassionate church planting, gospel proclaiming ministry was, was infused with the ongoing sense of great personal cost. We are to imitate that. And this allowed him to this allows him to comfort others with the comfort he had received. Do you remember where in the second letter to Corinthians uh, in chapter one verse four, where it says that the God of all com- who comforts comforts us all in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So he was pastorally sensitive and gentle, for sure. Next one, and a little bit like the first, eschatologically aware and radically urgent. Do you remember though that trio of verses in chapter 7, verses 26, 29, and 31? I won't read them now for the sake of time, but they should be marked in your Bible. Chapter 7, verses 26, 29, and 31, where Paul demonstrates his prophetic leadership calling for radical upheaval and the appropriation of core Christian beliefs. I'm going to say that again. And thinking about the phrases in those that trio, the pre- this present darkness, the time that had grown very short, like a furled up, an unfurling sail. That's where that word comes from in verse 29. And then in the last th- verse 31, this present form of this world is passing away. That was true then. How much more is it true now? He was a prophetic leader calling for radical upheaval and the appropriation of core elementary, basic, ABC Christian beliefs. And Paul considered the appearing of Jesus and his second return to be just that, basic, core, elementary. And yet today in the church, it is largely absent. Neglect.com. Paul wouldn't have stood for it. We shouldn't stand for it today. We should imitate his eschatological awareness and his radical urgency Moving towards the end, next one, astute and discerning. He's astute and discerning. Chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. But although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet... 
He was astute and discerning. He was knowledgeable, smart, articulate, effective in communication and spiritually astute. Do you remember we've just dealt with this whole thing of idols and him saying there, you know, that therefore as to the eating of food, this whole thing that we started off with for a number of weeks. But his opening uh, point there is that the, the idol has no real existence. We're dealing here with demons, guys. You know, we need leadership. We need spiritual leadership today that can be spiritually astute to cut through the nonsense, cut through the gibberish and the treadmill type communication, whatever. And Paul did that. He was astute and discerning. Penultimate point, he was faith-filled and dependent. Chapter 9, verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Paul, as we dealt with, was prepared to forego entitlement, wasn't he? Entitlement and rights in order to see the gospel spread. He trusted in the provision of God within that. He wasn't beholden to any man. And then finally, final and twelfth point, uh, Paul, Paul's uh, wonderful quality to imitate is his zeal. He was zealous. Chapter 10, verses 22 and 31. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As we dealt with last week in my longer than usual episode, if you've not listened to that, go and listen to that. I I gave a testimony about food and some health struggles and how the glory of God works within all of that. But make no mistake, Paul's zeal, his ultimate, the crescendo of his life. Do you remember what he says in Philippians? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in one sense, that is the ultimate to imitate that we shouldn't love our lives even to um, death. We should be willing to lay our lives down for our friends. We should be ultimately willing to and that seems such a far-fetched thing in our world, but nevertheless, that is the, I think, the core of what it means to be, to have the nature of Jesus formed in us by the Spirit of God, and that's what Paul's arguing for. Like, like, like men sentenced to death, that's what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 9. When he says here to us, be imitators of me as I am of Christ... I'm just going to read those those 12 things by way of summary and then leave you with one, one quick thought. Answering my own question, what would, what would the Corinthians have reasonably imitated of Paul had they been faithful? And that's the question for us today. If we are to be faithful, what should we be imitating of Jesus? And I think these 12 points are at least some of them. That, that thankful and eschatological, bold and focused, firm and fair, inverted, foolish and wise, transparently humble and strictly biblical, dependent on supernatural power, bold against church sin, especially sexual sin, pastorally sensitive and gentle, eschatologically aware and radically urgent, astute and discerning, faith-filled and dependent and zealous. I want to just read a couple of verses from chapter 4 here because this just goes to show that Paul... Um, didn't think more highly of him than he should, than he ought to. Um, if I can just find it here. 
Um, so chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited us, thinking of imitating Paul and imitating Jesus, for I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Two things on this. Firstly, that we, Paul is saying that God has exhibited apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. So when we're being commanded to imitate Paul, when Paul was saying that to the Corinthians, he was saying, imitate what it looks like to be like a man sentenced to death. That's, that's what it should look like to be a Christian. The second thing related to that, um, look what it says in the last little bit of verse 9 there. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. It's just it's worth noting there that this is just not it's not just a spectacle to this earth. This is the mystery. Um, it's also to the heavenlies. It's a profound picture and statement that even angels long to look into these things. And it reminds me of Ephesians three verse eight that says, "Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God has been made known to heaven." There's something crucially important about the image bearers of the Lord himself on the earth, his people, those within whom the spirit is forming and exhibiting and displaying and showcasing the nature of Christ. Know how we need that in spiritual leaders, Christian leaders today who would dare to take the name of Jesus. So Lord, we thank you now for this brief review. Thank you for the riches of your word once again. And we ask that you would give us hearts that are malleable, minds that are sharp and active and alert to be able to absorb. And I pray ultimately, Lord, that you would help each of us to become more joyful and bold in our witness, that as we go about moving and having our being, as we live and move and have our being, that we would uh, proclaim your gospel and have the qualities that we are looking at today, that there would be the resolve to know nothing while we are here on this earth except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Into the Prey, breaching the chaos of the church. We trust that it's been both provoking and challenging as well as inspiring and comforting in the midst of this very evil present age if you'd like to get behind what we're doing if you'd like to support us through prayer and through financial support we'd be deeply grateful for both of those two ways of supporting and you can do that and find out a little bit more information about that by going to firebrandnotes.com forward slash give that's firebrandnotes.com forward slash give we'd be deeply grateful check it out and we look forward to connecting with you soon Bye now. Thank you.